please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. One more if you are new with us today at RedeemerCommunity.life or in a card that you can find right in front of you, hopefully. We would love to know that you're here. I would love to follow up with you and help greet you and help uh, get you connected to Redeemer in any way that I can. Not Deuteronomy, Nehemiah chapter 6. Some of you old-timers will remember the late, great radio broadcaster Paul Harvey. And in 1965, he did a bit, if you will, called If I Were the Devil. If I Were the Devil. My old pastor at Denton Bible Church, Tom Nelson, played off of that. I think lots of pastors have played off it over the years. Pastor Tom said this. If I was the devil, if I was the devil, I'd tell you what I'd do. I would try to deceive you and get you into error. I would get you off base. And if you still stay true, I would try to disqualify you. I would get you immoral. I would get you where no one would believe what came out of your mouth. I would make you a tabloid where nobody believed you. I would remove your confidence where you were afraid to speak because your life was such a shambles. I would get you into sin. I would prowl like a roaring lion to devour you morally. And if I couldn't do that, I would try to make you successful. And I would distract you And I, if I couldn't disqualify you. I would get you busy. I would get you so distracted and disattracted from the gospel that no longer would your prayers be about holiness and souls. They would only be about the bottom line in your business. I would get you materialistic and no longer concerned about the spiritual nature of life. And if I couldn't do that, I would divide you. And if I couldn't divide you, I've almost lost you. You know what I'd do then? I would discourage you. And then if I couldn't discourage you, I'd try death. I would kill you. I would try my best. That's what I do to try to take you out. Deceive, disqualify, distract, divide, discourage, death. The killer D's to the faithful Christian life. Those are haunting words that hang over us all because I think we would all admit that we are susceptible. Peter was afraid of death. Peter denied association with Jesus three times over. Demas from 2 Timothy chapter 4 was distracted from the gospel in love with the present world and because of it he deserted the Apostle Paul. Those in 1 John were deceived by false teaching. The Apostle John said, they went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not 
of us. These were those that were part of the church but got deceived into error about Jesus. And they began to believe and proclaim different things. And they went out from us. Not that they were sent out, but they left the faithful band to go and peddle their false teaching. The Corinthians, the troubled Corinthians, were divided. Paul wrote to them, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. These schemes of the devil to disrupt faithful discipleship to Jesus. And of course, if you or I were ever to say, it'll never be me. We just remember Peter, right? Hey, Lord, even though all may fall away, I won't. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And in the very next paragraphs or so, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. And so I think we all need to humbly say that we are susceptible to all of these schemes of the enemy and do our best by God's grace to stay on the alert, to resist the enemy and stay faithful to Jesus. In Nehemiah 6, we're going to see a few of these killer D's. We have seen in chapter 4 opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. Chapter 4 was opposition really to the people, the remnant that had gathered there in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And in chapter 5 last week, we saw division within the ranks of the people. And Nehemiah having to address that. In chapter 6, if it's distinguished from chapters 4 and 5 in its focus, I think it may be there in verse 2. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me. In verse 5, then Sanballat sent his servant to me. These are personal now. For Nehemiah. Maybe the thought is we haven't been able to discourage the people, to distract the people. Maybe if we can cut off the head, if we can get to Nehemiah, maybe we can put an end to this work. Let's watch it in chapter 6. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Sepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? 
they sent messages to me, four, messengers to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Hey, Nehemiah, come meet with us. Maybe they're offering some sort of peace accord, if you will. Come meet with us in the plains of Ono, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Come meet. We'll talk about it. See what we can put together. Nehemiah was perceptive enough, maybe, or at least he suspected there in verse 2, but they were planning to harm me. He suspected that they had assassination on their minds. If they can get me away from Jerusalem, get me alone just with them, they can take me out. But if maybe that was what he was suspecting in his response, at least we see him focusing on something else. If I were to leave and go to the plains of Ono and meet with you all, it's 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, I can't jump in a car, I can't you know, grab my little Vespa and head up there. I'm going to have to walk. This is going to take at least three days, maybe up to a week to be there, to go there, to meet with them and to come back. And so most commenting on verses 1 to 4 say that what Nehemiah is up against here is distraction. We who follow Christ, we have chosen to live our lives for the Great Commission. Hopefully. Right? The great question we have to ask ourselves is, what am I living for? What's the purpose of my life? As I've said before, I'm not so sure the question for you and for me is, what am I going to do to make a living? But greater than that is, what am I going to live for? What I do for a living is important. What you do for a living is important, but what you and I live for seemingly so much greater. And I trust that in measure, all of us are seeking to live for the glory of God, the welfare of his church, and reaching the lost. Whether you are an engineer, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, a salesman, a stay-at-home mom, a coach, whatever it is that you've chosen to make a living with, what you're living for is the glory of God, the welfare of the people of God, and reaching those who are far from God. I'm across at Dallas Seminary speaking to a group of businessmen in Dallas, encouraged them for all that they did to make a living to live, to make God look good, and to make Christ well-known. Is that what you're living for? The glory of God, the welfare of his church, reaching the lost, to make God look good, Dr. Ramesh Richards, and make Christ well-known. If that's you, how easily we can be distracted from that. Huh? 
Maybe you've noticed the crowds in football, and it's not always the crowds. And football games, basketball games, trying to distract the players from doing their jobs, right? We'll see it tonight during the Super Bowl. Kicker's going to be out there to kick. It's, it's, it's not just the fans, you know, <sighs> but you got players back there in the back, you know, hey, hey, trying to distract them. You got even the opposing coach on the sideline. He's trying to get the crowd up. He may even call a timeout to try to ice the kicker, distract the kicker, get him thinking about other things, or maybe in basketball. You've seen that guy. He's at the free throw line, right? And everybody back behind the hoop is back there waving their arms and other things to try to distract him. <sighs> you ever watched golf? Quiet, please. Right? Everybody's got to be quiet for the golfers. And listen, I love golf. Why has everybody got to be quiet? Because he's going to hit the ball. Right? And he can't have any little thing to distract him. Click. Hey, wait a minute, you know. And the caddy gets all mad and they kick people out of the crowd because somebody clicked the camera or somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, had to clear their throat. Can't do it. You got to be quiet. Why? Because they can get so easily distracted. And there's good reasons for that. Hitting a golf ball is terribly hard. But I think to myself, in my Christian life, am I more like a kicker or a golfer? Those kickers, no matter what you're trying to do to distract them, focused. You can be as loud as you want. You can wave all the arms you want. You can jump up and down in front of me. does not matter. I am laser focused on what I'm here to do. Or am I a golfer? Any little thing, right? Makes me back off, gets me distracted. Sometimes I think I'm more like a golfer. So quickly distracted from the most important things in all of life. Come, Nehemiah, let us meet together in Sepharim in the plains of Ono. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Whenever you think that you might be distracted from the greatest things in life, the glory of God, serving for the welfare of the church, living your life on mission to reach people for Jesus. Whenever you think you might be distracted by that, maybe a step for you and for me is to remind ourselves that we are doing a great work. What I have found myself distracted from if I, is so great and so good and so noble, I need to rearrange my life again so that I am more focused on these things. Maybe we could ask ourselves the Nehemiah question, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Why should I stop spending time with God each morning, reading his word in prayer, pondering upon him, worshiping him? Why should I stop doing that to scroll through my 
Twitter feed for 20 minutes. My Facebook feed for 20. Why should I leave this to go do that? Y'all remember Mark McGuire? He was a great home, you know. He got caught for steroids, but he was a great home run hitter. I mean, he could mash a baseball, but he was also a pretty good golfer. And he would sometimes get thrown into these celebrity skills challenges against pro golfers. And in 2003, at the ADT Skills Challenge, he was going up against Greg Norman, Paul Azinger, and some others from the PGA. And in this particular challenge, they were hitting... I don't know, 100 and something yard shots. He had a pitching wedge. And of course, when the other golfers get up there, Azinger and whatever, it's quiet, please, shh, let him hit. Well, when Mark McGuire got up there, he's been, he's been playing baseball his whole life. And when he gets up to bat, nobody gets quiet for him, right? The other team is trying, ah, trying to distract him. And the home team, go, Mark! So when he got up to hit, he asked the crowd that was there to get hyped. He started calling them up. <sighs> Y'all, come on, come on. The, the other golfers thought this was funny and, and, and took it as an invitation to heckle him. And so they started heckling him, not so much calling him names, but getting close, telling him, McGuire, you can imagine. And all while this is going on, McGuire hits his pitching wedge to one foot nine inches and wins that part of the challenge. In the midst of all that distraction, <sighs> McGuire, you stink. <sighs> he tunes it out, stays on track, and hits it to a foot nine inches. Have you gotten distracted from daily devotion to Christ? distracted from service in the body of Christ, distracted from living on mission with Jesus where you live, work, and play? Has your sights gone from here to down here? We don't have time, but you've probably seen the illustration before, right? In many different contexts, but you, you got a big jar here, and then you got all this stuff that is your life. And you, you got to be careful and make sure that you put the what? The big rocks in first. And the big rocks represent the most important things of life. You put the big rocks in, and then you can take all the other sand. And you can pour it over and it'll find its spot in there. You might, you might can't get all the sand in there, but it's, you know, it, it leaves some stuff out. But if you start with the sand and put all the sand in and then you try to put the big rocks in, right, they just don't fit. They won't go in. And it's a reminder to all of us that we need to start with the big rocks. The glory of God, the welfare of this church, reaching the law. Am I spending time with God each and every day? Am I committed to my local church where we gather weekly 
to love one another and worship our God and hear from his word. And then we get into groups to encourage one another and care for one another and the like. And we use our gifts to build up our kiddos and our students and help in worship and all of these good things and to love my neighbors and the people that I work with who are far from God and try to share the gospel. I got to put those big rocks in first if they're ever going to fit. Well, it goes on. They can't distract him. In verse 5, then Sambalat sent his, sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Gashmu says, Gashmu was an important dude, kind of like they. That's the scariest group of people, isn't it? You know what they say. Well, who's they? It doesn't matter, but you know what they say. That you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. This isn't the first account, but we might say that, you know, it's become popular over the last five or six years. This is fake news here. They're making up some fake news about Nehemiah and the Jews. You and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. And you are to be their king, according to these reports. You've also appointed prophets to proclaim to, in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king, according to these reports. We're going to, not only is this word going to start spreading around Jerusalem, but we're going to report this to King Artaxerxes in Persia. And you know what King Artaxerxes in Persia does to traitors, don't you? He doesn't just kill them. He tortures them first. And then when he eventually does kill them, he makes a spectacle of them, chopping off their heads and the like. So come now, let us take counsel together. And I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. They're going to spread some fake news about Nehemiah, or at least that's what they're threatening. And the hope is to frighten him and discourage. Some of you might have a translation that says something like, their hands will grow slack with the work. The Hebrew idiom, it's literally, they'll drop their hands. Right? They, they were doing the work, but they'll get discouraged and just... The first is distraction. This one is discouragement. What if word gets out in Jerusalem and the people begin to think that I have these alternative motives? What if word is spread to King Artaxerxes that I'm looking to rebel against him and set up my, my own kingdom here in Jerusalem? What if, what if, what if? 
what is You ever get discouraged as you seek to follow Jesus and help others do the same? Maybe it's lies that are told about you. Maybe it's gossip about you related to your motives or why you're doing this or how you're going about it. Maybe as you've served Christ and served his people and sought to reach out to friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, maybe you just see so little fruit. You've been at it month after month, year after year, and you're just not seeing the fruit that you would like to see, and it can be so discouraging. We had met, had some pastors here from Katy the other day about Awaken West Houston, and I was just visiting with one of them. And I knew that he works with his hands. It's one of his uh, habit, or not his habit, hobbies. He loves to build stuff. And I said, you built anything lately? He said, no, no. He said, but you know what? I think every pastor ought to have a good hobby doing something that you can start and finish and see the results. Because sometimes in ministry, results are so hard to see. But it's not just for pastors. It's for you who serve in kids' ministry. Or maybe you lead a group. Or maybe you're trying to disciple folks over coffee or whatever it might be. Or you build your life into others, you serve them, and they leave, or whatever it might be. Or maybe you're misunderstood, maybe your weaknesses get exposed. We've all got our weaknesses, and maybe we try to cover those up and keep them under wrap, but they get exposed sometimes, and you let folks down, and there's no excuse for it. And, and these kinds of things and a thousand others, there's the enemy whispering in your ear, what if? What if? And you're no good. You could be better. You've chosen the wrong path in life, right? There's just these whispers in your ear from the enemy. And they can be so discouraging. Well, Nehemiah says, he knows what they're up to. All of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. So I think one of the first things you and I can try to do when we find ourselves discouraged, is think, what is the enemy trying to do to me here? What is he up to? He's trying to discourage me. He's trying to frighten me. He's trying to drop my hands. He's trying to get me to pick up my ball and go home. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so hopefully, in these moments of discouragement, we can, if we, if by God's grace, we can kind of pop ourselves out of it and say, what is the enemy trying to do here to me? He's trying to discourage me so that I'll quit. That I won't serve in that kid's class anymore. That I won't lead that group anymore, that I, won't, that I won't venture out again for Jesus. 
I won't take any more risks for him because the last time I took a risk, it didn't go well. I'll just stop. We're not ignorant of his schemes, and so when we can see insight into that, hopefully we can say, well, it's not going to happen. By the grace of God, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to stop serving. I'm not going to start stop taking risks for Jesus. I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm not going to do that. By the grace of God. And then secondly, pray. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Lord, our hands are falling. Would you strengthen them again? Distraction, discouragement. Watch this one in verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. We're, we're about to see this. Well, look down there. Well, let me read it. They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? Could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Sanballat and Tobiah, along with, look at verse 14, remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. These enemies of Nehemiah hired this fellow named Shemaiah up in verse 10. And they said, hey, Shemaiah, for whatever reason, you are confined at home. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was crippled in some way. Maybe some think he was just unclean and he had to stay at home. We want to hire you. What we need you to do is, is get Nehemiah to come over to the house and give him as if it were a word from God, this story, that his life is in danger and that he needs to flee to the temple for protection. And so Shemaiah does it. He sends word, hey, Nehemiah, you, can you stop by the house? And Nehemiah, I guess, being a good leader here, says, yeah, I'll stop by. I say, what's going on, man? And when he does... Shemaiah says, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple and let's close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. If, if you know your Old Testament, you know that not anybody, just oh, anybody, can enter into the temple. Only the Levites, the priests, could do that. And Nehemiah is from the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levite. He's not a priest. And so he's not allowed to go into the temple. It would be a sin for him to go into the temple. And they knew that because, down there, that I might act accordingly in sin. They were trying 
to get Nehemiah to sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. They're trying to disqualify him or discredit him in the eyes of the people so that they would not follow Nehemiah anymore. Nehemiah, to this point, apparently has lived his life above reproach. And this remnant of the people not only were willing to follow him, but wanted to follow him. Because he was a man of integrity, leading them to do something great. But if we can get him to sin in this way, we can discredit him, disqualify him, and the people will not follow him anymore. You think the enemy would love to discredit you? In the eyes of your family? In the eyes of the people that you work with? In the eyes of your neighbors? You bet he does. We are meant to live above reproach. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Peter said it like this, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, being a Christian, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Both Jesus, Peter, Paul, we could quote from Philippians 2, calls upon you and me to live. Dwight Smith is one of the one of our missions partners, he would say it like this, that we are to live lives of qualitative distinctiveness. That filled with the Holy Spirit, the quality of our life is meant to be distinct from the average life lived in our culture. We're to be men and women of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and many, many other things. And yet, when we fall into other ways of living, we're not people of love, but of anger or coarseness. When our speech is not wholesome, but unwholesome. When we lie or cheat or gossip or foul language or dirty jokes or terrible work ethic or whatever it might be, Satan loves it because it discredits us. We can try to share the gospel with our friends at work, but if the life we've been living is not one of credibility, they could care less what you have to say about Jesus. This works at home too, doesn't it? All of us want our kiddos to follow Jesus. 
we bring them here on Sunday and, you know, we put on a good face and here we are. But then, men, if we go home and throughout the week treat our wives in unloving ways and speak to her in unloving ways and respond to her in unloving ways, wives, if you come on Sunday and you bring those kiddos and you get them dressed up and you put on a good face, but then the rest of the week you respond to your husband in unloving, unrespectful ways, it just discredits the gospel. And what we so long for our children to believe and cling to. It works at home. It works in the workplace, it works in our neighborhoods. Satan would love to discredit us. I'm not so sure this um, illustration works anymore because I'm not up on all the magazines, but I heard this one years ago. It made sense years ago, right? You're in the, you're in the uh, supermarket and you're about to check out and there's all the magazines. And you look over and on one of the magazines it says, cure for cancer has been found. Will you get excited? Well, at least in those days, it depended which magazine is it on, right? If it's on U.S. News and World Report, maybe you'd get a little excited because, at least in measure, there's some credibility to that magazine. Cure for cancer, U.S. News and World Report, let me see. But if you saw it on what? National Enquirer, you're liable to what? Why? Just back in those days, maybe, I, is National Enquirer even still around? It, it was a tabloid magazine. It had no credibility. It was filled with a bunch of crazy stories about aliens. And then the question is, you and I are not out telling people a cure for cancer has been found. We're out telling everybody that there's one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who spoke everything into existence by his powerful word, that he created us in his image, but we fell into sin, and that the provision for it is that the second person of the Trinity became a man in the virgin womb of his mother Mary. He lived a perfect life, went to a cross, and died. And when he died, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And they put him in a tomb, and three days later, he came back to life. And some 40 days after that, he ascended back into heaven, and one day he's coming back again. That's the message that we proclaim. And the question is, okay, what magazine are you? Are you U.S. News and World Report, or are you National Enquirer by the life that you live? Does your life give credibility to the message that we proclaim? As Paul would say, does your life adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? So what do we do? By the grace of God, we live above reproach. Like, like Nehemiah, I will not go into the temple, for that would be a sin and would discredit me in front of the people. And so rather than do that, he says, no. He's not 
going to do it. He's going to live above reproach. And of course, living above reproach does not mean perfection. We seek by the power of the Spirit of God in our lives to, to live in obedience to Him. And when we fall short, we repent. We confess our sin. We apologize to those that we've hurt. We thank God for His Son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness that we have in Him. And we keep on going. You don't have to be perfect in front of your kids, but we do have to be honest in front of our kids. You don't have to be perfect in front of the people you work with. But when you slip, you say, hey, you know what? Earlier when I said that, I, I'm so sorry. I, sh I should not have said that. Will you forgive me? Yeah. With our neighbors, we're not going to live perfect lives in front of our neighbors. But when we sin, we apologize. We confess it to the Lord. We repent from it, ask him to help us as we move forward. Are you distracted? Are you discouraged? Are you discredited? If you're distracted, maybe, maybe take the jar of your life and dump it all out. Put that jar back down and say, okay, what are the big rocks that I need to put in first? And then take the rest of your life and get as much of that in there that you want and that you can but make sure the big things are first. Are you discouraged? What is it that the enemy is doing in your head? See if you can't step back from it and, and, and seek to understand what exactly he's up to. He's trying to get you discouraged, to get you down. By God's grace, don't go there. Push back with truth and pray that God would strengthen your hands. Have you discredited your testimony? Are you disqualified to talk about Jesus in your workplace or in your home? Repent. Go to Jesus, confess your sins, and ask him to give you the help to live in the power of the Spirit a new kind of life, a life of love, joy, and the like. That you and I together might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our enemy prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He has his flaming arrows that he shoots towards us. He wants to distract us, discourage us, disqualify us, deceive us, divide us, and more. Would you help us to be on the alert? To resist him, firm in the faith, as Peter would say. Lord, thank you for the grace that comes our way through Jesus Christ. That if we've, we find ourselves today just so distracted from Christ and the gospel, giving our lives to so many other things, 
Thank you that in Jesus there is no condemnation. That we can come to you in honesty and confession and plead for your help and that you will be there for us as we humbly come. Lord, if any are discouraged here today, would you encourage them with the great work that they are doing. And Lord, if any are, are living lives that discredit the gospel, disqualify them from speaking boldly about Jesus, pray you would lead them to repentance today. Lead them to the confession of their sins and a new resolve to walk in obedience to Christ, to let the light of the gospel shine through them. We pray this for the glory and the honor of the name of Jesus. Amen.